Today I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about Havana Syndrome. I've been looking into this mysterious illness for a while now. It started in Cuba in 2016, hitting Americans and Canadians in various foreign service jobs with a whole suite of neurological symptoms including headaches, dizziness, and difficulty concentrating. It now affects more than 200 people in foreign service posts around the world. So what is it? Originally, experts thought there was some kind of sonic weapon involved because the first person to complain of symptoms heard a loud noise, something piercing, and then he developed tinnitus, a ringing in the ears that I'm very familiar with, and some of you might be too, and then he lost some of his hearing. Soon after that, some of his colleagues also stationed in Havana also heard weird and loud noises, and some of them also developed neurological symptoms. Another explanation that became really popular in the media was some kind of directed microwave weapon. Though physicists who know a lot about microwaves haven't really favored that, and recently a really respected advisory group called the Jasons came up with a report that concluded that the most likely explanation was something called mass psychogenic illness, popularly known as mass hysteria. That's the topic of today's episode of Follow the Science, an exploration of science, medicine, and medical misinformation. I'm your host, Faye Flam. I'm a science journalist and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and this podcast is funded by a grant from the Society for Professional Journalists. My guest today is going to demystify mass psychogenic illness. It's really not as bizarre as it sounds. Her name is Suzanne O'Sullivan, and she's a neurologist at the National Hospital for Neurology and the Epilepsy Society in Ireland. She's been traveling around the world to document cases of mysterious outbreaks that she thinks might be psychogenic, and she's chronicled her findings in a new book, The Sleeping Beauties and Other Stories of Mystery Illness. Yes, let's let's talk about this book. What got you interested in this topic of, is it psychosomatic illness or psychogenic illness, or are both those terms synonymous? Uh, well, I think they're not exactly synonymous. They have different meanings, but I think there's no perfect term. So we'll just use, we'll work with psychosomatic is imperfect as it is. But I, I'm interested in it because I'm a, a full-time neurologist and about a third of people who come to any neurology clinic, not just mine, probably have psychosomatic symptoms more so than neurological symptoms. So sort of out of necessity, I became interested in this subject and then started writing about it just to sort of raise awareness. How did you recognize that? It sounds like that's one of the problems that people either refuse to recognize it, can't recognize it, just assume that it's a, a physical illness where the symptoms just aren't observable. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Actually, for neurologists, it's not difficult to make this diagnosis. And I think, as you say correctly, a lot of people assume that we come to this diagnosis because we can't find anything or we can't explain it any other way. But actually, in neurology, you know, the, the nervous system is organized in a very specific way that means that when you examine someone or when you kind of put together the signs and symptoms that someone presents with, psychosomatic conditions now often called functional neurological disorders are very different to neurological disorders. So they don't obey the rules of neuroanatomy. So you can usually find really um, strong clinical signs when you examine someone that tell you the difference between someone who has 
say, a functional or psychosomatic problem or a brain disease or a spine disease. So we're diagnosing this on positive clinical signs consistent with the diagnosis in just the same way that if someone goes to a neurologist with a migraine and describes all the symptoms of a migraine, we can diagnose migraine on the story. And same with things like Parkinson's disease, et cetera. We diagnose things clinically and functional or psychosomatic disorders have very distinct clinical patterns that allow us to diagnose them. So then the next thing that is really fascinating is mass psychogenic illness, the idea that that this is a social phenomenon. And how, how did you come across that? Or when you say a third of patients have a, a psychosomatic illness, are, are most of those sort of idiosyncratic or are some of them also part of some larger kind of social network of symptoms? Yeah, so I became interested in this first in dealing with my own patients. So in the individuals I was dealing with, it was very varied how this came about. But how I became interested in mass hysteria or mass psychogenic illness was really in looking at the way these things are reported in the press. And you frequently will see news headlines that say things like mystery illness strikes small town, mystery illness, you know, occurs in school. And I've become accustomed to the idea that when you see mystery illness in the media, it's very often a psychosomatic or psychological problem. It's like we can't confront these things. We can't talk about them. So we use euphemisms for them. And I started visiting communities that had been affected by mystery illnesses, like, a, you know, children in Sweden who fell into a coma when they were um, going through a, a process um, to seek asylum in Sweden. So children of immigrant families, a town in upstate New York where loads of teenagers got ticks, a town in Kazakhstan where people fell asleep. And what I found by visiting these communities is a new way of looking at psychosomatic disorders in that they're not just about your life, your psychological well-being, an injury that you had, a disease you had. Sometimes they are a manifestation of your kind of social circumstance. They're a way of solving a social problem that arise out of a social or personal need. Wow. Can you talk about one of those? I know all I've read a little about uh, your writing on those three examples. Can you talk about one of them to sort of flesh that idea out? So how this book came about was I read this newspaper headline called Sweden's mystery illness. And the story was about a group of children in Sweden who had fallen into what was referred to as a sort of mystery coma. So these children were as young as seven, as old as 18. And they basically slowly withdraw from society and go into this kind of comatose state where they don't talk, move, eat, do anything at all for sometimes months or even years at a time. And this was sort of presented in this news headline as a kind of a, a what could possibly be happening. This is so mysterious sort of problem. And I went and visited the children. And it really wasn't as mysterious as all that because all of these children were from children, uh, came from countries where life is very difficult, Syria, etc. They were seeking asylum in Sweden. And when faced with potential deportation from Sweden, that's when the children withdrew and became um, completely catatonic, essentially, for months and months. And the only way of curing it was to offer them asylum in Sweden. And then they very, very slowly woke up. Um, and when I visited these 
children in Sweden, the doctor who facilitated my visit was really very interested in trying to understand the brain mechanism for these disorders. Like how could a seven-year-old child be completely unresponsive for months and months at a time? But what that really kind of showed me was how easy it is for us to conceptualize medical problems by thinking about what's happening inside the body, what's happening inside the brain. Because that's so much easier than looking at the real problem, which was that these children were immigrants from difficult countries, forced immigrants, traumatized children who were afraid of being sent back to the place they came from. And it really heightened for me the fact this was clearly a social problem. That is so striking, though, with a, a, a full coma. I mean, how could the, they? <laughs> I, it's, it's mind boggling. Yeah, I mean, it is a very extreme form of this condition. There's lots of precedent for it. You know, I run an epilepsy clinic. Epilepsy is a brain disease, not a psychosomatic condition. But about a third of people who come to me with epilepsy or believing they have epilepsy because they black out regularly or go into comatose states regularly actually have a purely psychosomatic condition. So this concept of the brain just shutting down and kind of stopping you from kind of taking in information, your awareness and your attention kind of meandering away from each other is there in everyday life. You know, it's very frequent, although this was an extreme form of it. I do go into kind of a lot more details of the neuroscience of this when I write about it, but just to give you a sense, um, you know, when, when our bodies are under stress, we get lots of physiological changes. That's normal. It happens to all of us. Heart rates go up, stomach gets upset and so forth. Your brain is then coded with an expectation of what should happen next. And if one has been living in a social environment where one believes that these physical symptoms will lead to further physical symptoms, which include apathy and then stopping eating and then stopping mood moving, your brain through those kind of coded expectations can inadvertently fulfill the sort of prophecy that has been coded there in a in sort of a, to give a less extreme example in everyday life. If you think something will be painful, it'll probably be painful because your brain tends to sort of fool your nervous system into sort of, you know, interpreting certain signals incorrectly if your belief that that will happen is strong enough. And in these children, the belief is so strong that asylum-seeking deportation leads to these illness, that it sort of overwhelms them to the point that they can lapse into a sort of semi-coma. Wow. I, I, it's that, that's the most astonishing. The others seem like the kinds of symptoms that could be psychological. That one is, a, is sort of a shocker. Did you find that uh, when... It, have other people reacted to that the same way? Well, actually, you know, see, I don't, I, I agree with you that these sort of symptoms are very, um, they're very extreme, but I don't think it's that unusual because, and this sort of is the problem for many people with psychosomatic disorders is they can believe a certain amount of symptoms. They can go so far and say, well, you know, I expect this to happen if I'm a bit stressed, or perhaps I can believe in a, a minor amount of symptoms. They don't believe in severe disability. But actually, in, in the practice of neurology, we see people with profound comas, profound paralysis, you know, very severe symptoms are often a manifestation of psychosomatic symptoms. Interesting. It reminds me, something you said earlier reminds me of a conversation I had with my physical therapist because I have, I have a physical therapist because I have a lot of sports injuries and I've had some problems with a dislocated shoulder. And we talked about the fact that 
I get better from these because I sort of expect to get better, but that some patients with a similar or even less severe injury won't get better because they don't expect to get better. And I wonder, is that sort of on the spectrum of this phenomenon? So an injury brings attention to your body. Attention changes how your body feels, but it also changes how you move. And I always think uh, sports analogies are good for this because, you know, if you think of footballers, only some footballers are able to kind of take penalties or kick, you know, anxiety affects your ability to use your body normally because you start paying attention to the movements and that makes them less automatic. So injury brings attention to your body, which alters the efficacy of your body. I mean, you're, you're, everything's supposed to be automatic, but when it's, when you pay attention to things and stop being automatic and then they don't work so well. And then obviously expectations matter too. So, Let's get let's move to Havana syndrome just because it's a, it's uh, an obsession here in the U.S. People are fascinated by it. People, uh, and and I think that your view is it seems like the most sensible view, also the minority view. So, how did you first hear about Havana syndrome, and what have you learned about it? Well, I, I've heard about it through the same way that I learn about all of these medical problems. It's recorded as a mystery illness, and um, I, my eyes go to those immediately because I know how often mystery illnesses turn out to have a psychosomatic cause. I've read, you know, most of what has been written officially on this in terms of the various Jason reports and consensus reports and um, medical papers in Journal of. Uh, American Medical Academy and so forth. So I've read everything really that's available on this. And I don't consider my view to be the minority view. I would say it's it's actually not an unusual view. <laughs> She's right, of course, that theory about microwave or energy weapons is not necessarily the favorite theory among experts. It is the most popular among journalists, and I think that happens for a couple of reasons. One is that it makes for great headlines, but also there's a stigma associated with psychosomatic or psychogenic illness that can seem disrespectful to the victims. Though, as I learned in this interview, there shouldn't be any stigma. You know, first of all, I have to kind of express sympathy for the people caught up in this because, I mean, people are poor. People like me um, are pouring over there, that you know, pouring over the medical problem without ever having met them. And I would imagine that that's not helping at all. However, you know, the bottom line as a neurologist, so putting aside all of the other parts of this, um, sort of, you know, the rumors, etc. The bottom line is you have to decide: does this make sense neurologically? Does the body actually respond this way to sort of various triggers and how do these constellation of symptoms go together and the you know it's it's absolutely inescapable that sound doesn't damage the brain and microwave energies don't have any particular preference for the brain over other organs a number of scientists have dismissed the microwave theory as implausible especially physicists and engineers who work with microwaves so people with relevant expertise have weighed in there but there's one thing that made me think a loud noise might be involved, at least in the very first case. A couple of years ago, I had a sort of a sonic accident where I was exposed to a very loud fire alarm and developed a piercing, incurable, and kind of disturbing tinnitus after that. And when it first started, the tinnitus did cause me to have insomnia, and that led to some other symptoms similar to what people who have Havana syndrome have reported. Okay, so I'm gonna back up a little and talk about a, a symptom I have that I think might be relevant because it's very similar to the first person who complained about 
a problem in Havana. I was exposed to a loud noise. I have a predisposition to hearing loss. My parents are both went partially deaf. And the loud noise actually made my hearing loss worse and triggered tinnitus. And again, that kind of contributes to the story of Sonic Weapon is that people know that excessively loud noises can damage your ears. Yes, and then your brain makes the tinnitus, which is sort of weird, and it's also very psychological. There are times I don't think about it, and then as soon as I think about it, I'm like, oh my God, there's that There's that ringing, you know? Yeah, but I mean, first, you're absolutely right. I mean, so sound, we know that, you know, people at rock concerts, et cetera, you know, or in blasts, or et cetera. So loud sounds do damage ears, and obviously if you have, a hearing impairment, then that your brain may compensate in other ways. So you hear the unusual noises. But first of all, in terms of this kind of sonic weapon theory, the sound has to be so loud that other people could hear it. Yes. And other people did hear it, though. I'm not sure other people were damaged by it was a, a you know. <laughs> well, precisely. But that's uh, sort of not, you know, in an explosion, you know, different people are injured to certain ways. But first of all, the sound that damages the ears has to be so loud that you know, you wouldn't be the only one who'd hear it. Everybody would hear it. Not not everybody would be injured, but, you know, and obviously the people who were sort of affected by Havana syndrome, they were affected in tower blocks, in hotels, in, in places where there were lots of other people in the vicinity. So the kind of sound that could potentially damage your ears to cause some symptoms would have been heard by others. And we know that these sounds were just heard by the individuals who were affected. Um, so it would be, it, it really, and it also obviously, you know, we're, we're talking about other symptoms um, other than just hearing loss, um, which wouldn't be explained by the sound injury. I keep thinking back to that very first patient with Havana syndrome, though. It seems really plausible that a lot of people developed symptoms because they were told they might be targets of enemy agents armed with a mysterious weapon that directs energy or microwaves into their heads. But how did it all get started? According to a detailed account in the website ProPublica, the first person to report physical symptoms was an athletic-looking man of about 30. And he had sudden hearing loss and tinnitus and was later fitted with a hearing aid. His case was disturbing, and understandably so. And when he started telling his colleagues in Havana about it, they started noticing weird noises and weird symptoms. Assuming this is mass psychogenic or mass sociogenic illness, very often the first person, if you can identify reliably who they are, has something completely different than all the other people. So you might see somebody who, who sort of, as you say, maybe they this person had a sort of benign positional vertigo problem or some medical problem distinct to all the other people, but it was how they attributed their symptoms and how influential that person was that that was the problem. So it would not be surprised at all to learn that the first person had something different, but it was their sort of, because they're so compelling, it was just what, whether it was them or was someone they told their story to, that it was that compelling sonic weapon robot that drew in all the other people. Yeah, yeah, just reading about him. I wished we had more access to the, these people so we could find out what their history was and who, I mean, it was just funny that they didn't consider him patient zero. Um, and also when I first developed tinnitus, I did have other symptoms because I didn't sleep well for a while until I got used to it. And so the sleeplessness leads to all kinds of unpleasant things. And I could see how he might've found himself 
um, in bad physical shape, but that other people and other people seeing this guy, he was described as a young athletic guy, seeing him sort of brought down that way could have triggered. hundred percent. Um, yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. So, you know, I wanted to bring up another very relevant thing right now, which is vaccine reactions. People are, you know, a lot of, you mentioned, I think, one case where people thought they were getting something terrible because of an HPV vaccine. And now we have COVID vaccines and people are reacting in lots of different ways. And I wonder if some of them might be psychogenic. I think there were young people fainting for a while and that, that sort of tapered off. Yeah, 100%. I mean, anything that a person perceives to be harmful can produce physical symptoms. So everyone's familiar with the placebo effect, which is that, you know, if you give someone an inner tablet, a sugar pill, and you tell them that it's it's a medication for whatever illness they happen to have, you know, a certain percentage of people will feel better for just taking that tablet as inert as it is. And the exact same thing happens in the opposite direction called the nocebo effect which is that if you give somebody something or do something to somebody and say this has the potential to be harmful, then a potential, then a percentage of people can suffer um, physical symptoms as a result of that. It's really about attention. The more attention you pay to your body, the more little, little things you notice that you normally wouldn't notice. So exposure to a vaccine or any noxious stimulus could potentially result in us noticing changes in our bodies that you know, are probably more psychosomatic in origin than anything else. Oh, that's, that is interesting. And I know another example is early in the COVID pandemic, a lot of people were sure they had it and got tested. And then somebody I knew was sure he had it. And I thought I had seen him and I thought, oh my gosh, maybe I have it if he has it. And then of course, when he came back with this negative test, all of my um, possible symptoms disappeared. <laughs> yeah. And listen, so. it's so important that, you know, you say that, but I've had the same experience because I think sometimes it's kind of perceived that if you have this sort of tendency, psychosomatic symptoms, that what's that mean? You're mad or you're weak or you're fragile in some way. But I guarantee you that's not the case. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic in London, we locked down in, in March 2020. And I, I, thought I had a temperature almost every day for the first two weeks, I'd say. And I checked my temperature every day and I never had a, a raised temperature, you know, because I was just so kind of anxious and so focused on myself. So these things happen to any sort of person. It's quite a normal thing. But the problem is if, if you kind of don't get over it, it can lead to a physical disability. So it's normal for us all to get those things. The problem arises if your anxiety keeps building and you notice more and more stuff and that can lead to disability. Oh, I had one question I forgot to ask about uh, Havana syndrome, and that was the uh, University of Pennsylvania brain scanning um, study. So what went on there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm glad you asked that actually, because it's a really important point, because a lot of the media, they present some of these medical studies as if they showed something definite and as if they were, you know, more scientific than they are. So the, so all of the tests in the diplomats were normal, but there was one paper published in the journal of um, in JAMA. And basically what it said was that there was a difference in the brain scans between the diplomats and the control group. And that kind of led people to think that there was an abnormality. But let me just explain what the difference was. It wasn't an abnormality. So what they did was they compared the brain scans of the diplomats and then they compared them with the control group. But when they took the control group, what they did was they dismissed anyone in the control group who'd ever had a neurological condition. 
Now, obviously, they didn't do that in the diplomats. So you, from the very beginning, you've got two groups that are slightly different. They then also, they matched. So if you're going to compare the scans in people, you want to compare very similar people. But the people in the control group were only partially matched with the diplomats. So now you've got another reason for these two groups to be different. And you're also comparing two groups with completely different lifestyles. So diplomats, we can assume they've done a lot of long haul travel. They may drink more alcohol. And as you might expect for all these reasons, that these two groups' brain scans will be slightly different. But a difference is not an abnormality. Neither scans were abnormal. They just had a slight difference in certain measurements. It would be a little the same as if you said to yourself, well, I'm going to compare that. Is this group... Are they as tall as other people? And you took another group. Yes, it's it could be a statistical fluke. Exactly. So if you've got two different sets of people with different lifestyles um, and different, just different people, you're going to notice slight differences. And even within this medical paper, the, the people who published it said, we don't know what any of this means, and it may mean very little. Um, but unfortunately, when that's then reported in the media, they take the sort of the most sort of striking part of the study and they don't explain the study properly and that just perpetuates the whole problem. I'm interested in the implications for the way our medical systems work, whether there is over-diagnosis, over-treatment, whether um, this uh, psychological factor actually, I mean, misunderstanding it might affect the way our, our medical system treats people. I think you touched on that in the book. Yeah, I do. I mean, I have grave concerns for over-diagnosis because, um, you know, our medical systems, whether you're in the UK or the USA, are very much weighted towards over-diagnosis. Because, you know, when we're setting up the parameters for test results and we decide, you know, I think some people think, well, it's positive or negative, but actually more often than not, there's a kind of gray area where you can place your cutoff line. And when doctors are saying, well, how high should high blood pressure you know, how, how high can your blood pressure go before you worry about it? Or, you know, how, um, what, where should your thyroid hormone level, what's normal and what's abnormal, you know, doctors very much err on the side of, of over-diagnosing because we don't want to miss diseases because we have a kind of false belief that over-diagnosing is better than under-diagnosing. And also it helps to give a diagnosis to people because it, it alleviates their anxiety sometimes, but it also is important for insurance companies and um, other sort of classification systems and treatment pathways. The consequence of that is that we really do overdiagnose quite dramatically in some specialties. And I think people perhaps don't fully appreciate that. I think that also we, we're not still, we're not yet fully fully aware of how to use all this new technology we have. So I qualified in medicine in 1991. And at that point, MRI scans were just coming into sort of regular usage. Um, So before that, we didn't even really know what the inside of the healthy body looked like. Now we've got these scans where we can see minute little things, but we don't know what to make of them. So I think there's quite a lot of reasons that we sort of um, are still learning in medicine and overdiagnosing quite significantly. Oh, that is interesting because there was a trend here in the U.S. It might have happened there in the U.K. where people were going in for so-called full body scans while they were healthy and hoping to find something. And they did find things. And and I think people did get worried just because the human body, especially over certain ages, is going to be full of little things. 
I mean, what I always say to my patients is, you know, if you look at how different we are on the outside, I mean, we all look completely different, but we also have lots of kind of, some of us have knobbly knees or big noses or cysts or little scars on our skin. We've got all these little differences that we live with and we don't worry about. We've got all of those differences on the inside as well. But modern medicine hasn't been using all of this technology for long enough to know which things to fully dismiss and which things to pay attention to. Every now and again, we do a brain scan and we'll see people have aneurysms, which are pretty serious things. But, you know, until we got MRI scans, you know, people live their whole lives having an aneurysm that never, ever bothered them and never caused them problems. And perhaps when they die for some other reasons, they're discovered. Whereas now we find them all the time on scans and that results in, it can be really life ruining to, to realize you've got these sort of um, worrying things inside you. So I think people underestimate the psychological effects of getting the results of these things. And I think also that there's a sort of, it, it's incorrect to say that early diagnosis is always a good thing. Actually, there are some medical problems that you can live with for a terribly long time without any treatment. And therefore, early diagnosis in, in those people is not a good thing. Something I was reading an excerpt of the book and you, or it was an interview with you where you talked about how these are, they're, that these uh, psychogenic conditions are real in a way that, that there's a sort of a popular notion that they're not real, but they are real. I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? Is that the minute you start using terms like psychological or psychosomatic or psychogenic, people kind of think that the symptoms are lesser than if you had a disease. What I always say to my patients as a very minor example would be, you know, if you're frightened and your heart starts going really quickly, your heart is going really quickly and you can't stop it. You're not imagining it. You're not doing it on purpose and it's not within your control. So the symptom is real, but it's not due to a heart disease. And it's exactly the same for these people who get seizures and paralysis and the diplomats with tinnitus and hearing impairment. The symptoms are arising because our brains are flawed at dealing with information and they make mistakes. And when the symptoms arise, they are completely real. And I think it would really solve a lot of problems if people could appreciate that. So that therefore, if I went to my doctor and I had seizures and my doctor said, well, you know, it's not epilepsy, it's psychosomatic. And if, if people believe that both epilepsy and psychosomatic seizures were equally problematic and equally worthy of our respect and equally real, then so many people wouldn't struggle against the diagnosis. I think these diplomats in Cuba, if people were able to understand that what's happening to them is disabling and terrifying and real and outside of their control, then it would be a lot easier for them and the doctors caring for them to accept that this could have a psychosomatic cause. Interesting. So it could, yeah, that was my, my next question was, whether understanding psychosomatic illness can, can improve the treatment of people. I mean, it would really improve the accept. You know, first of all, once you start understanding how these physical symptoms emerge, so I see people with seizures and we talk about how, how their evolution of their illness has led them to having seizures, how the attention they pay to their body and other physiological changes has caused the seizures. That often just alleviates the symptoms just there and then, you know, because, you know, there's sort of often these disabilities are sustained by the anxiety that something has been missed and by the attention you're paying to your body. 
So alleviating the sort of anxiety around the symptoms can can really make a big difference. But I think to the other important thing is that, you know, if other people believed that psychosomatic suffering is as real as any other kind of suffering, then we wouldn't have to have these endless debates. Psychosomatic has been made so shameful that people have been forced to search for a sonic weapon. Oh, so that, yeah, I I guess that there's, there is a stigma to it. And yeah, so this, and the sonic weapon also is Somehow it, it generates headlines in a way that yeah. <laughs> the news Well, you know, like. the problem I had is if you look at the doctors looking after the Havana syndrome patients, if you look at all their statements to the press and also what they wrote in medical papers, they pretty much said, you know, these people are not acting, they're not pretending, they're not faking, they're not trying to avoid work. And what all of those statements say is that they think, those doctors think, that psychosomatic disorders is the same as acting, pretending, and avoiding work. Um, if you say, so, if you present the, that diagnosis to these people under that sort of um, kind of conceptualized in that way, then you're pretty much saying to the people, you're either pretending or you've been attacked by a sonic weapon, and then you you leave the people with no choice. But if those doctors had understood psychosomatic disorders in a more modern and um, intellectual kind of way then perhaps this situation would never have got so far out of control. Well, the case is far from closed, and there are a lot of people out there who disagree with Dr. Suzanne O'Sullivan, but I think that the idea of mass psychogenic illness deserves a closer look, for sure. And I hope more people listen to her and others who can explain that it's not something that only happens to people who are crazy or who are faking something, that it's a real phenomenon that could happen to a lot of us. And I think understanding this phenomenon better could also lead to a deeper understanding of how the mind and the body affect each other. Thank you for listening to Follow the Science. Follow the Science is produced by Faith Flam with funding by the Society for Professional Journalists. Today's episode was edited by Seth Glicksman with music by Kyle Imperator. You can follow us on Facebook for the latest, but if you'd like to hear more Follow the Science, be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Follow the Science.